Hello, robots, and welcome to today's episode of Remedial Studies. Yes, it is I, present Rachel. You heard from past Rachel last week, but I'm back. Will you live to regret this? Maybe. We'll see by the end of this episode. I'm so excited! Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's okay. Hannah's excited to see me, and honestly, as long as you, you don't mind me being here, that's all that matters. Of course they don't mind. Pshaw. <laughs> now that we have that gross friendship is magic bit over, this week we are going to be discussing one of my favorite things of the moment, Anise Mitchell's musical Town. Um, we're talking specifically about um, the musical that was played, the version of the musical, excuse me, that was played pre-Broadway um, in the summer of 2016. It's the one that has the cast recording that is on Spotify right now. It's gone through a couple of changes. That's the only reason I make a distinction. Um, they're, I believe they're done in Canada and they're going to be going to the West End this fall. They're going to stop over in London first. Yeah, they have to go to London first and then they're coming to Broadway. <sighs> it's, it's a whole thing. But that's the specific version of this show we're going to be talking about for the most part. Because um, that's the one we have a recording of. But Hades Town, how would you describe Hades Town? It's an experience. I love it so much. I looked at, I was so curious. I had to look up pictures of what the production looked like because, like, obviously a musical has a visual component. It's not just the songs. And it's like a steampunk great depression thing. And it's the, it is a wonderful, it's probably my favorite retelling of Orpheus and Eurydice. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. And, of course, that's a Greek tragedy. And it's been, like most Greek myths, it's been adapted a million times, but it's really this great, the way that it's executed, it's kind of bluesy, kind of jazzy, kind of swingy. Kind of folky in parts, even? Kind of folky, because, I mean... That's what Anise Mitchell does normally is is the folk thing. And it's just a great blend of these styles. And, and I think it's just this really great, it's not meditative, like I'm not going to call it a meditation, but it's, it's really about, it's about, it becomes about doubt and, and ca- it's about doubt and capitalism and relationships. And, and, and the nature of myth itself at some point. A big thing we talked about in the production meeting we had, and it's like the first big thing I would want to talk about, is this whole motif of cyclical storytelling. Yeah. Because the the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, the bare bones of it, is Orpheus and Eurydice get married. Orpheus is the son of Apollo, who is a magnificent music maker. Eurydice dies um, on their wedding day, and... He journeys to the underworld to retrieve her, um, and Hades makes him a deal that if he walks out of the underworld and doesn't look back, he has to trust that Eurydice is behind him. He, they can go back to the surface, to the living world, and be fine. But of course, he looks back at the last second, and she dies. Yes, he he's actually, I think how it happens in the myth is he's actually at the mouth of the underworld and then he looks back mm-hmm. and she's behind him. So 
I've heard the staging for this is really cool in the musical, but I ha- we can't see it because it's only been in Canada. Yes. And I don't have a passport, so. Rest in peace, borders. We're going to talk about that. Um, but, but a big thing in the musical is the structure of it I, I find very cool in that a lot of the different songs – like the titles are often repeated there's a lot of very very often repeated musical moments whether it be music or lyrics these almost call and response kind of moments one of the more obvious ones that i saw is the musical the album i think there's a couple extra songs in the actual show but on the album the musical is bookended by two songs called road to hell Road to Hell 1 and Road to Hell 2. And it's sung by Hermes, who is the god of travelers, and who is the narrator of sorts along with the fates. And he's discussing, um, at the beginning of the story, talks about Orpheus and Eurydice and kind of introduces them a little bit, but introduces the secondary main female character of Persephone, who hops off the train at the beginning of spring at the end of the show and at the beginning of the show. And I think what that kind of means to me, the whole thing uh, on the road to hell, there was a railroad line is the first line of the show, I believe. And the cyclical nature of the story that it keeps coming round and around, like the cycle of the seasons, like the cycle of a train on, on it, on a route. The, a big thing with the narrator specifically with Hermes specifically is he knows they're singing a song again and they're telling a story again it's an old song it's a sad song it's a love song and he's like it's a sad tale it's a tragedy it's a sad song but we sing it anyway and it kind of sets you up a little bit for a lot of the overall themes that kind of run through the show that end up being about the nature of storytelling the nature of song the nature of myth is that we all know how it ends and you still sit through it. You know she dies at the end. It's kind of like how almost everybody knows the end of Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Because <laughs> it, it's so pervasive in, in our culture that most people, I think, know of it, even if they don't know the details. Right. There's that motif of repetition. And a lot of the times the musical repetition is it's the same line repeated in a different context or said by a different person. There's a couple of moments where Eurydice and Orpheus exchange lines and the meaning is changed because a different person sang it. But I think the song that we're probably going to end up spending the most time on, I've been listening to this album for a couple months and I'm still thinking about it, is the season, no, the act one closer, Why We Build the Wall. Yeah, there's a, I mean, that song is probably, I think... I think, so here's the thing about that song, mm-hmm. is it's probably the most overtly political song in the musical. Like, it punches you in the face oh, yeah. with it. You can't ignore the parallels to uh, the current debates about American foreign policy and border control mm-hmm. and immigration. You can't ignore it. I am going to say overall, I think in a weird way that does a disservice to the musical as a whole, like everyone's focus. Like, yeah. I mean, we're going to focus on it. But I do want to acknowledge that the musical as a whole is incredibly political, I would argue. Oh, yes, it is. There's a lot of dichotomies at play 
in the musical, and one of them is this, the difference between up top, where Persephone is queen for the spring and the summer, where it's it's very almost socialistic, where uh, there's a line Orpheus has in Living It Up on Top where he says, if no man takes too much, we will all have enough. Right. Which is very socialist, communist, that kind of thing, that kind of deal. And Persephone is all about that. She's all about the natural order of things and nature supplying for everyone according to their need. And Hades, I mean, it's a factory town where people, people including Eurydice, sell their souls and their agency for security, financial and otherwise. Yeah, it's literally the capitalist industrial complex Yes, is hell. It's very, <laughs> there's nothing subtle about oh, it. absolutely not. And another thing to, to build off that thing where they have to sell their agency, in the second act, there's a line Hermes has where he's talking about Orpheus going through the underworld. And he says, I don't know why this stuck with me. He couldn't quite see their faces right, but he could hear them singing. And a, a repeated line in the show is keep your head low. And mm-hmm. there was something about the fact that in order to adapt to this form of labor and what turns out to be quite literally manufactured security (laughs) is they become part of the machine they're not people anymore in the way that orpheus and persephone know how to identify them they've lost something really fundamental about their personhood because they're in the land of persephone says this all the time it ain't right and it ain't natural and all that is, the, 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 the Hades town is built by Hades. We learn this over the course of the show, that he has built this electric city as a way of coping with his own anxiety and his own doubts about him and Persephone's relationship and how she leaves him for half of the year. There's a specific song where he talks about, you were gone so long and I was lonely. So I did all these things. Why don't you appreciate it? Like, these aren't walls. They're my embrace. The fire of the furnaces is just my desire for you. And all this other stuff. And she's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, like that's, no. It is one of my favorite lines. Did you think I'd be impressed with your neon necropolis? And I love that she uses necropolis there. Because it is a city of the dead who are nobody anymore. But you are absolutely right. It is an intensely political show and it talks a lot about agency and personhood and how we can be encouraged to give up those things to have something that we think we can we can't find anywhere else or we don't trust that people can provide to us right for Eurydice a lot of that is security because she and Orpheus live in poverty right I got the impression from the album it's a little bit hard to tell because, like, I can't, there's no visuals, but it seemed like he went off somewhere for quite a while yeah. to tour or play music or whatever it is musicians do. And he left her alone mm-hmm. for some time. And when he came back, she was gone. Yeah. So, I mean, we can talk, maybe it's, maybe we can talk a little bit about, that's an, that could be a nice segue into our our discussion about doubt and looking back, mm-hmm. perhaps. Yeah. And to talk about how 
in this version of this myth, Eurydice chooses to go mm-hmm. to the underworld to go stay in Hades town. Yeah. Because Hades appears to her directly, which is not in the original myth, if I remember correctly. Correct. In the original myth, uh, there are a couple variations, but most of them in in the traditional versions, Eurydice dies a, a senseless death. She's bitten by a poisonous snake. She's murdered by satyrs. There's one where she, and I really want your thoughts on this. Uh, robots because I don't know there's one version where she dances with naiads on her wedding day and that kills her and I just think that sounds like having a good time (laughs) so I'm sure as to why that results in death women aren't allowed to have good times I don't I don't know but let me know if I couldn't find like why that that people just state it matter-of-factly like that's not weird but (laughs) I mean they're the Greeks who knows Oh my goodness. But yeah, in this, Hades offers her, like, come be my canary in the coal mine, which is a weird analogy, perhaps, but basically he's like, come be my little, you know, bird in a cage, and, you know, I'll give you the security that you want, and she goes with him because she's hungry, and she's alone, Mm -hmm. and... I mean, that's a choice that a lot of women have to make sometimes. And I think that's what the song, When the Chips Are Down, is about. Like, we moralize about women, you know, doing things when they're poor, uh, I think, sometimes. And the situation is that society has allowed women to be in that situation. And should we really be criticizing them when they have to make difficult choices? Yeah. But anyway, she chooses she chooses to go instead of being senselessly murdered, which I appreciate as a feminist. Yes, I would 100% agree with that. Um, because I, I feel like a lot of the reasons she chooses, and this is addressed in the song Promises, is Orpheus sort of causes her to doubt him in, in a way because he... You're right, like, he leaves her alone. He goes off on his own all the time. He makes these fantastic promises. It's not on the album, but on Wedding Song. He talks about, like, oh, the river will provide for us. Like, nature will provide for us. The birds will make our wedding bed. And that's all very nice. (laughs) And it's very pretty, and it's very romantic. And as we get to know him through the course of the play, it's very Orpheus. But it's not something that's going to fill your fill your belly like you said hunger is the big motif i think in this in this show i think some of it by virtue of choosing to set it in that the quasi great depression 30s 20s kind of deal is that is a big concern and eurydice is one of the only people who really talks about it directly in the world up top where she, uh, I think it's Gone, I'm Gone, where she talks about, yeah, like, Orpheus, my heart is yours, always was, always will be. It's my gut I can't ignore. And she's like, dude, I'm hungry. I'm cold. <laughs> you said you would, like, harbor me. You said, like, the rivers and the trees would provide for us. And you haven't done any of it. And then I think you see that doubt creep i mean there's literally a song in the musical called doubt creeps in Mm -hmm. 
which is the very final. It's not the very final song, but it's at the end. And it's when they've made the deal. Orpheus is is leaving. And it's that... It, the, the song kind of explains why he turns around. Mm-hmm. Even though if he just followed instructions. Yeah. You know, that's always bothered me about this myth. Is like, what did he have to lose by not turning around but at the same time i think that doubt and the need to look back is something we talked about as being something so fundamentally human yeah because there's nothing else he 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 was gonna do when you get told not to look back and and i think some of it is playing into uh something that's worked into the original myth and what's worked here is that lack of trust and a, and a doubt in one's partner whether it's in your ability to keep them or their desire for you the relationship of eurydice and orpheus is often juxtaposed with the relationship of hades and persephone and in the song right before doubt comes in i think it's wait for me too is what it is the song that comes before it is persephone asks hades you'll let them go. And he says, I'll let them try. And she says, what about us? Are we going to try again? And they talk about how, well, it's almost spring. Can we try again next fall? And she's actually the one who says, wait for me first. And she's like, you'll wait for me? And he's something like, you know I will. That doubt is juxtaposed with that sort of rock-solid affirmation that we don't know. We do not see them the next fall. We don't see if they just start the whole cycle over again. But for that moment, there is that one really true moment of trust and understanding that we see in their relationship that harkens back to they both talk about when they first got together and how great everything was. And then the work came. (laughs) And they were both like, ugh, can we not? But to contrast it with Orpheus and his doubt that just keeps building and building over the course of the song and how he he feels alone and he feels silent even as Eurydice is singing behind him and how she's trying to tell him the night is darkest just before the dawn it's coldest right before spring and all this other stuff but he because he can't see her and he can't hear her and he doesn't he ends up not trusting that she's behind him and that lack of trust breeds doubt And that's ultimately why he turns around. But something that I know, I think we were both really kind of itching to talk about is why is that something that is repeated in myth, that sort of need to turn around? Because we see that in the story of Lot's wife. Right. And the fall of Sodom. And she's turned into a pillar of salt. She is, instantly. Is why is that need to look back something we identify with humanity because i think it is it's something i i do i think and some of it might be the second someone tells you not to do something that's the only thing you want to do (laughs) i i don't know because i've been thinking about it a lot and i think as human beings it's hard not to look back because in a way I think, especially in the case of Lot's wife, I don't know if it's if it necessarily translates to Orpheus and Eurydice, but she looks back on her burning city, and I mean, she's lived her whole life in that city. Yeah. 
and she raised her child in that city. And I think sometimes it's just hard for us to let go of things that are everything, like we're the sum of those past experiences. Without them, we wouldn't exist as we are. And I think maybe that's why she turns around. That makes sense for me, yeah. I think there's a grief. How do you not look back? Exactly. It's like, what kind of God would ask you not to? I mean, but that's what gods do. That is what they gods do. They ask you to do all kinds of weird stuff. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a trial. But yeah, but that's the whole thing. They're gods. They, they dole out trials. Yeah. But with Orpheus, not only are our ties to the past really strong, but I feel like doubt is a very human emotion and experience because, like, what other animals... Do we have any evidence of other animals experiencing doubt the way that humans do in relationships? And, like, because yeah, I used to think, like, use of tools identified, you know, mm-hmm. whether or not something was intelligent. But maybe it's, like, more existential than that. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe, it, maybe we should be focusing more on emotional intelligence. Yeah. Like, do elephants experience the crushing dread of the void yes that's what i want to know exactly it's like are you cognizant enough of your place in the universe to experience severe anxiety (laughs) because i do not believe my dog has ever been anxious for a day in his goddamn life yeah, I do. So, I mean, it's hard to say. I've actually been listening to a really interesting audiobook about cephalopod intelligence called The Soul of the Octopus. And it's like got me on this whole big kick about like, what is human nature? Like, mm-hmm. you know, what is intelligence? That sounds interesting. It is. It's super cool. But I feel like these weird existential like feelings that are so complicated and seem so unnecessary to me sometimes. Yeah are what really makes us human not anything cool like anxiety no that's that's it yeah that's the thing it's like you fucked up a perfectly good primate look at it it's got anxiety (laughs) no that's it that is it it's true though oh geez so existential crises aside i love this adaptation and i love adaptations in general i really love fairy tale retellings word them up true that and an extension of that, I feel like, is retellings of myths. And there's, I mean, there are so many. And I didn't realize that the that the adaptations of Orpheus and Eurydice were as pervasive as they are. Like, I checked the Wikipedia page and was like, what <laughs> is happening? So there are a ton of operas about Orpheus and Eurydice, which go, I mean, operas are... That's they live on this yeah, kind of that, thing. That's the perfect medium for a story like this. Yeah, perfect opera check. I did not expect to see names like I guess Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon is a retelling of this. Salman Rushdie and Pacha did a retelling of this. I think my first adaptation of this that I ever experienced was Sandman. Mm-hmm. There's an issue of Sandman that is about. Orpheus and Eurydice and it's the more traditional retelling but it is in there Mm -hmm. and I also want to talk about the OG Hades and Persephone fanfic that we did not know this is true story listeners 
Hannah started talking about this, and without discussing it beforehand or realizing that either of us had read it before, I knew what fic she was talking about. That's how strong of an OG this is. This is internet canon. Mm-hmm. This has reached the level of, like, if you're on Tumblr and you're a woman, you know what this is just as much as you know, like, LOL cats and all your base are belong to Or us. my immortal. Or my immortal. Yes, my immortal. That's another. Yes, that's perfect. Perfect. So we read this back in the day, in the early days of Archive of Our Own. Um, and it was available full online. And now she, the authors had to take it down and she self-published it. But we recommend that you buy it. We're probably both going to go buy oh, it. Oh, absolutely. Now that we've I'm going to be, <laughs> after we're done recording, I'm going to go buy it. Like, full disclosure. <laughs> yes. So, buy it. But anyway, the, the OG fic was called Receiver of Many. Um, and that is the name of it on Amazon. Please go purchase your copy at $6 for the Kindle edition. We're not sponsored by this woman. We just love her. We just love her work a lot. And it is R-rated. So oh, it's, just it's very R-rated. Please. Be mindful. We are be mindful. Like rated M for life kind of ladies, I feel. So just be yeah. aware of that. We don't really care. I feel like none of that bothers us, but we oh, yeah, recognize no. that it might bother other people. And there might be youngins. Well, that's like me. Now that I write fic about our D&D games, I have to remember to ask that, I, which was so hilarious because um, our friend who I am writing a, a hard R-rated fic between one of um, the NPCs in our game and her character, I'm just like, so how much sex is too much? And she's like, the limit does not exist. <laughs> like, you need to hit me and you need to hit me hard. Like, come on. So, but we we understand that might not be everybody's bag. So just keep that in mind um, when you go read it. It's good, though. It's real good. Yes. Make responsible choices. Do what feels good for you. Yeah, we respect that. Um, but I needed to mention it because I feel like that fic really kicked off this, I think there's a fascination in the tumbles land, like with Hades and Persephone, and where in, and people are interested in that duality mm-hmm. of like he's a big underground nerd and she's like the pretty goddess of flowers but she's the one even though he's the god of death she's the one who you need to watch out yeah for. she's persephone the destroyer but yeah I, I think a lot of the fascination with it comes from the fact that it is a very almost malleable kind of myth i think that's where a lot of adapt the urge to adapt comes from with any kind of mythology is you can kind of squish it into whatever box you want. Yeah. Which is good because sometimes I think it's good and I think academia is kind of moving towards this now that a lot of like the older people who have already like been published and who may have been a part of an academic culture I personally don't agree with that much is kind of moving on from this hard-lined view of like, well, this is the way things have been and this is how it must have been. Because, you know, the whole story with Hades and Persephone is that he kidnapped her and all this other stuff. And there, there's a, a big thing, and this is in Receiver of Many, and this is in a lot of Hades and Persephone reimaginings that have sort of happened in um, our internet lifetimes, is taking that and being like, well, why couldn't she have just chosen to go? Right. And I think people see that in the original myth, because in the original myth, she eats exactly six pomegranate seeds Mm -hmm. exactly six yes like pomegranates if she were hungry which 
Why no, six? You better just mount down that seat. whole pomegranate. Yeah, like we we look at this, and I think it's like women looking at the myth and finally having a place to be like, wait, a hot second. Like, you're going to look me in my face and tell me this woman was just dumb and just ate the pomegranate and wasn't thinking and it was only six seeds? Like, that is highly... That's highly suspect. Highly suspect. And second of all, I think it's awesome that we're, like, in a position... Like, the original myth is always going to be there. We can't... I mean, there's always going to be the senseless death of Eurydice. There's always going to be the version of the myth where she just eats the six pomegranate seeds for some reason. But I think in a lot of more modern reimaginings, what we're doing finally and kind of what you're talking about is we're finally giving women agency and the ability to make choices, even if, like in the case of Eurydice, they're not good choices. Right. Another thing, this is kind of a side tangent, but another thing, another myth, mythological couple that I've seen this starting to pick up on a little bit because someone came up with the idea of it and we're like, hey, we do this for Hades and Persephone, why not for these people, is the relationship between Aphrodite and Hephaestus. Yes! And how it's like, everybody can believe that Persephone really loves Hades. What if she, what if Aphrodite really loves Hephaestus and Ares just made all that shit up? Because honestly, that's something Ares would do. Yeah. How good would that, would a, of a story would that be? Of this woman who's this goddess of love loving someone that everyone else sees as broken. Yeah, I mean, that is that is what I'm here for. But I am not here for your Hades, Persephone, Kylo Ren. Oh, every fucking Rilo on AO3 that wants to make that a thing, square up, my fists are ready. We are telling you, we're your internet ants, and we're telling you, we know, we know, but also stop. I know. I, I used, believe me, I look back in time 10 years ago to 14 and 15 year old Rachel, and I know deep in my heart, I would have been into it. Yeah. That doesn't, I'm not proud of it. But I, and yeah. it's like, I know, I know. I understand the appeal. <laughs> understand that you will grow out of it and you will see the error of your ways. Yeah. We you think of this as like your down to earth wine and. Anna, we're old enough to be internet like mentors i know but like it happened so fast it on did the happen so fast on the internet but yeah so just please don't because it's it, it it's imagine you're a vicini and we're in a go montoya and we're telling you those words don't mean what you think they mean <laughs> practice self-care don't ship kylo ren and Ray. yes <laughs> that's all i have to say <laughs> practice self-care do not Raylo. yeah don't do it I also saw Steric Hades and Persephone fic, which, like, we talked about, yeah. and we're like, that's on thin yeah. ice, but it can Team stay. Team can stay. They're just on thin ice. I mean, I had to astral project back five years ago <laughs> to when Team Wolf was a big thing. God, uh, do you remember when that was such a huge deal? Oh, my god! And gosh. everyone followed yeah. it? Oh, gosh. It jumped the shark so early. It did, and I felt awful for that. <laughs> I know, I know. It just so many things went terribly wrong. Yeah. I feel like they took it away from the interns, and it just was less fun after that. I know that. they needed it needed to stay with the MTV interns. Yeah, but alas, they knew what we wanted. <laughs> there were all kinds of like terrible editing mistakes where like his eyes are blue and then they're red, and then this happened, but then like no, and it just got too 
it got too edgy. It went down that same path that DC went down. And it's why DC wasn't as successful as Marvel. Yeah. But it went down the same path. They did go down the same path. But anyway, to circle back <laughs> to whatever the fuck it was we were originally talking about. We got very excited. We did get very excited. But it um the idea of agency in this in this show, it's an interesting one if you look at Persephone and Eurydice and the differences between their experiences. Obviously, Eurydice is a human being. She is just one person. Persephone is a goddess. And she exerts her power in certain ways over the course of the show. And a song that I love, because Amber Gray is just an amazing performer, is the the Act 2 opener, Our Lady of the Underground. That song is fabulous. It's so good. But it's almost like she's doing like a tease of all this stuff that she can do and all the stuff that she has that the people her husband now keeps prisoner will never see again. And it made me think about her part in their subjugation as minimum as it may be. Because she's just as much a part of Hades Town as Hades is, I think. Like, Hades makes it, but she still has to live there. Like, she has to be in this gilded cage for six months out of the year. And he builds that for her, yes. allegedly. Allegedly, yeah. Because there's that line in the for Enchant One, lover everything I do, I do it for the love of you. Which becomes more and more sad over the course of the show and epic three deals with that a lot he's not lying but if you come from that place of doubt we, it's really all kind of happens off stage it all happens before the show like hades town is up and running by the time eurydice and orpheus get there and even in i think it's epic two in rcd it's epic one in the show that ran in edmonton but he even talks about like like orpheus over the course of the show, writes this song that is the story of Hades and Persephone. And he wins the chance to get Eurydice out of the underworld by performing it for Hades. And he talks about how the river Styx isn't even a river of water anymore. It's a river of stone. And Hades lays them high and thick with a million hands that are not his own. And a big thing with Hades' character is that reactiveness... And him utilizing this capitalist machine that he's built to build the wall, capital W, as a way of holding on to something that he doesn't even really understand or he won't admit to himself is gone. Right. Because there are a couple of lines where he is telling Orpheus, I think, about what it's like to love a woman and how a woman will bring you low and how you should chain a woman by... And, and it sounds like he's going to talk about handcuffs and, and things like that, but he actually talks about wedding rings yeah. and gifts of jewelry. Find her with a golden band. The idea that, that he sees marriage as a way to control and contain mm -hmm. a woman. Yeah. And to keep her from slipping away from him. And I think that's a very dangerous and poisonous idea. The idea that you have to bind someone and you can't just trust them. And I wonder if that's one of the sources of doubt in the musical. I think so. I, I think it's, it's the difference between thinking love is about belonging to someone and thinking it's about belonging with someone. Because that's the, the whole kind of corner Eurydice turns at some point. Orpheus and Eurydice both have to turn. And that's something Hades struggles to understand. 
is he just clings and clings and clings to all of this stuff. And it is, at the end of the day, just stuff that will not supplement this need he has for his wife's devotion and her love. There's this dissonance in their relationship. And I, and it, it's so simple the way Mitchell talks about it because he, she keeps telling him, you know, this isn't natural. And he's like, well, I laid a power grid. And it's like, wasn't it electrifying when I made the neon shine and like all this other stuff? Like everything he talks about is metal and machinery and electricity and all this stuff that is inherently artificial. And that's why Persephone doesn't buy it. Because she's like, no, you clearly don't love me as much as you think you do because you don't understand what I need. And you don't understand what I would appreciate. You're doing what you think you want. And that is a huge thing in their relationship until he starts to like, it's hinted, I think, a little bit that he's going to, he should start to let all that go and focus on what made them want to be together and what made them fall in love in the first place. Which, again, is a scene that's talked about several times over the course of the show by both Persephone and Orpheus. I mean, and then I just want to say, this doesn't really have anything to do with analysis or anything, but Orpheus has, the the guy who plays Orpheus has such a beautiful voice. Oh my god, does he? Like, it's so perfect. Like, I don't necessarily like Orpheus as a character, but, but Chops the this the actor it just is so good it makes you like orpheus i know it makes you like get it like how people become enraptured with his performance he has a kind of voice it's just it's obviously very well trained like he's very very good with hitting the notes and all that sort of stuff but he like invigorates it with this thing and i don't even really know how to describe it it's so clear and glass-like and it's a falsetto oh but it's so full I, for a I do not understand how he can put that much into a falsetto i do not understand it's crazy what magic i think that's what really sets apart the musical from the studio album which i immediately ran off and listened to yeah after i listened to the music town was initially uh, a concept album by yes um, Anise Mitchell. I will say we talked about this a little bit in the production meeting but I made a joke that <laughs> I made a joke that the musical really dials down the Bonnie Vare mm-hmm. uh, vibe and dials up the swing blues vibe. Yes I would agree with that. The I mean the musical's still pretty folksy but like Bonnie Vare way down but I think that's because the guy that does a lot of the male singing parts on that album sounds a lot like Bonnie Vare, but it's not Bonnie Vare, obviously. It's some other guy. And then she got actual triplets to to sing the fates on that album, which I enjoy, but that's just an aside. I just remembered something um, that I wanted to bring up when we talked about the political parts of this play, and we might want to get into that before we're done um, a little bit more, yes. is... Somebody on Tumblr, I'll probably reblog it to the Tumblr, made a really awesome graphic of the original casting call for the off-Broadway production, which is what this recording is. And the only character who has a specified ethnicity is Hades. And he's the (laughs) only character they knew they wanted to be white. I mean, that's the man, though. Yeah, that's the thing. It's the whole thing. um, We're just making all kinds of polls on people we talk about all the time. 
Guillermo del Toro talking about the pale man in Pan's Labyrinth. There's a reason he's white. <laughs> Hades, I think, is meant to be the establishment. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. For sure. But I, I enjoyed, this is kind of a tangent, it has nothing to do with the album, but um, I did enjoy how there was a lot of mixed race ladies in this show. I think Eurydice and Persephone are both played by mixed race black women. There's a ton of people of color all over the show. It's becoming more mainstream. I hate the word mainstream for that, but you know what I mean? Like, like it's becoming more prevalent. Yeah. But like, which is which good. Is good because it's like, I still remember the days when like Broadway's so white, man. It's getting there. It's getting there. I'm glad there's shows that are about specific like ethnic experiences. Like the band, the band's visit, which is part of this Tony season, is about a group of Egyptian and I believe Israeli people. And like, that whole experience of being from that part of the world and being brown and that's obviously something i cannot relate to but it's it's so um it's very very interesting and then this broadway season's been so weird the band's visit is like the only <laughs> normal show and then there's actually you know what i can't talk shit about mean girls because i listened to the album the cast album came out it's pretty fucking good oh did you see that there's um they made jagged little pill into a musical what by Alanis Morissette. Yeah, that's a that's thing, a that, thing happens. that happens. Apparently, it's really good. I need to find that now. It's just so amusing to me that we live in a world where musicals based off Mean Girls and SpongeBob SquarePants have the most Tony nominations. And that's not to knock either of those shows. That's what I love about adaptations is because, like, I don't know. Like, sometimes the adaptation is just bring something out of the source mm-hmm. material that was there the whole time but it was coded in and then the the adaptation just teases yeah. it out for real though listen to mean girls it's real good i don't know what they tease out of spongebob squarepants to win that many tony nominations either, but it must have been it something must be something <laughs> i don't know i'm just really excited that there are more co- di- di- i'm just excited yeah we don't need endless revivals it's not a thing. Yeah, I'm just excited that there are that there are new stories told by new people and that it's not just like the same thing over again. Like I know what my life is like as a middle class white lady. Like I don't need any I mean, like I don't need tons and tons of stories about that. I right. live that every day. Like I wanna I wanna connect to other people. I wanna know what other people's experiences are like, and that's really why I come to different kinds of media is because I want to know, you know, I mean, I want to know, like, also, like, what it would be like to have cool magical powers, but also, like, <laughs> <laughs> I want to connect with people on, like, a fundamentally human level, like, telling stories, and maybe this kind of, maybe we can use this to tie back in, I don't know. I feel like telling stories is a way to connect with other people on one of the most fundamental levels of human experience and i think that's why we keep telling each other stories that's why we sing in any way i think (laughs) so okay robots that is the end of the show we got really excited about a lot of stuff thanks for hanging out with us this kind of thing i think is why we wanted to do this in the first place is to just show you how much unbridled enthusiasm we have about the nerdiest (laughs) things but thanks for hanging in there with us. Uh, even over the course of a, the last, you know, month, we had our best 
month for downloads last month. We've got to meet some really cool people and like talk to you on Twitter, which has been fun and talk to some actual, not talk, but like be acknowledged by creators, which is so crazy as a tiny little podcast. Yeah, like Emily Wilson and her editor liked my tweet about reading the Odyssey on an airplane and that was a really surreal moment because I'm like, Emily Wilson (laughs) acknowledged our show. It's like when what's his face, Kieran Gillian retweeted us. Oh yeah, and like we almost like died. We just talked about you for like forty five minutes, and you acknowledged it. What the fuck? Like it, it's just one of those things where it, it's. I think it's easy for us when like we're sitting in our respective rooms talking um, and recording the episode on Skype. It's kind of like exists in a vacuum in my head, and then it goes out into the world, and like real life people acknowledge it. And want to be engaged with it. We're not doing this as an advertising ploy. or <laughs> We're doing it because we really love the material and we want to share that with other people. I mean, we love talking to each other, but like getting to interact with you all and hearing that like you really love Outlander or you're like you cry about Terry Pratchett yes. like on a regular basis too. Like all of those interactions are so meaningful to us and like it's just right. been crazy. In a good way. In our production meeting, we talked about Ellen this week, who said that, like, us putting out a new episode, like, saved her whole day. And I was like... Yeah, that made my life. Ellen, do you know? Do you know that I would die for you? (laughs) Yeah, that made my life. I just, I woke up to that tweet and was like, yes, my day is saved. (laughs) Um. But we're really, so we're really excited. We're really grateful. And we're also going to do another hashtag remedial read along. So it's time to talk about Men at Arms. And I know Rachel is like, oh, I'm chomping. Dying I'm chomping. She finished it. I'm excited. I got so much shit to talk about. Y'all aren't ready. I'm not ready. <laughs> I still have to reread it. So I'm always like a little bit behind the rereading, uh, <laughs> the rereading train. But I'm excited to come back. I've loved revisiting Terry Pratchett, and Rachel has reminded me of everything that I loved about it the first mm-hmm. time. And it's been, like, magical getting to see it. I feel like I'm getting to read it vicariously for the first time again through <laughs> you, which is, like, such a precious and wonderful experience for me. And, like, very selfish also, <laughs> but I'm enjoying it. I read it, or I listened to it, I should say, on, on vacation probably have that discussion on twitter do you count listening to audiobooks as technically reading so (laughs) i mean it's all the same material but i listened to it on vacation and like my poor mother so i i went on vacation with my mom it was just me and my mom for the first time in like eight years i was giving her like regular updates about what was going on and i'm like can you believe it it was like the the potential segment what the fuck terry but like in real life and it was like every like six hours i'd be like mom you're not gonna believe it but it it really is like guards guards was really good and you all know that i loved that book men at arms is phenomenal it is so good and it it is a great continuation of an introduction into how good terry pratchett is when he is on his game because every single sentence in that book, he is on his game. 
he really hits his stride in the Discworld series about where you are, which is why I encouraged you not to start with the color of magic. Like, mm-hmm. I get it. You needed to start in public. You needed to do I publication to order. My heart. I respect that. And my heart told me but publication order. But that was why I told you <laughs> not to start there. But Because <laughs> <laughs> I wanted you to like it, but you did it anyway. So it was okay. We, we dodged that hurdle. Yeah. Because it's not like Color of Magic is no, bad. No, but, but I just... see what you mean. It, it's very clearly, I think some books just suffer from first book syndrome, where you can see that mm-hmm. someone is kind of exploring it for themselves. They're telling themselves the story. Yes. And that's not a bad thing at all. But like, yeah, compared to Guards, Guards, even like Weird Sisters, like Color mm-hmm. of Magic, it's like, is this the same series? And that doesn't mean it's bad. It just means that the stuff that he starts putting out around the time I'm at is just so good. Yeah, it's like ne- it's some next level. It's next God, level. And he- oh, so many hot takes. Every yes. single thing, well, every single thing Grandpa Terry ever said was the hottest of takes. Yeah, even like 30 years Oh later. my God, yeah. <laughs> well, there's some stuff that's like, it's so relevant. And you're like, 30 years have passed. Why? Yeah, I always I always think about that after I finish a Pratchett book. I'm like, this was written like a while ago. It shouldn't ago be this for a lot it shouldn't of them. Be this relevant. This should not be. This take should have cooled mm-hmm. by now. Mm-hmm. We should no longer need aloe vera <laughs> for these burns. Oh my god! But yeah, uh, that's your homework for the next episode. Is we're going to be discussing Men at Arms. It is the continuation of the story of the Ankh-Morpork Fork City Watch. Sam Vimes is getting married and he claims he's going to retire. So Carrot is de facto kind of put in charge. And there <laughs> is something is stolen from the Assassin's Guild and there's mysterious murders happening around town as a result of a new weapon that has been introduced to the Discworld. Dun, dun, dun. It's real good. There's a subplot about yeah. a dog guild and it's real good. <laughs> Oh, the dog, the dog guild. guild. Okay, all right. <laughs> anyway, so if you want to get in touch with us on our various and sundry social medias, will you be like friends of the show, Matt and Ellen and B? I hope you will. You can find us on Twitter at Remedial Studies. Apparently, I'm the de facto social media manager, so you're going to be mostly seeing me there with my ramblings. I tried while you, you did were try. out. I tried. It just doesn't come naturally to me. Like, I'm not meant to be clever and funny on the internet. It's I'm very just bold not. of you to assume I'm clever or funny. I think you are. That's very kind of you to say. And I appreciate it. I try really hard. <laughs> I'm going to be trying to be more active on the Tumblas. Um, so that is at remedialstudiespodcast.tumblr.com. We also have an email set up because we are lonely and in need of companionship and validation at remedial studies podcast at gmail.com if you like the show and you like listening to us please rate and review um on itunes that would be super cool of you i looked at it today and somehow i don't know what happened i don't know if someone's account got deleted or what have you but all of our ratings and reviews weren't showing up i wonder if that was just a glitch i haven't checked it recently but now we don't have a rating anymore. And I'm like, guys, we were five stars for oh. so long. Like, it's one of those things. I, I know it's arbitrary at the end of the day, but it still feels good. But if you really like it, we, we, we want you to tell us so because that makes us feel good. We will shout about it with you. It will be a good time. So that is where you can find us. Read Men in Arms. 
there will not be a quiz, but you should read it anyway. And I guess we'll see you on the internet. Yeah, bye, robots. Bye.